you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter chapter 2, excuse me, if you're new with us, uh, we've been going through the book of Luke. Typically what we do here at First Baptist Olo is uh, go through books of the Bible on Sunday morning, and we began Luke some time ago. Last week, uh, Pastor Philip preached from Haggai uh, as I was battling some illness, and uh, this today... Uh, This morning, we'll be back in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In today's culture, I feel like uh, we have lost the ability to wonder. Now, I don't mean wander. We do plenty of wandering in the sense of aimlessly trying to figure out where we're going uh, from place to place wandering around. I mean wonder. Now, I don't mean wander wonder in the sense of I wonder what I'm going to eat for lunch when we leave this morning, but I mean wonder as in the cause of astonishment, as in admiration or marvel. Uh, We've lost a sense of that, uh, I feel like, and I feel like we are losing the ability to wonder because instead of stepping back at times and taking in the breathtaking view the breathtaking landscape, or marveling at the magnitude of a great event, our wonder is too often suppressed by the desire to capture it on video or in a photo so we can let everybody else wonder at what we should be wondering at. See what I'm saying? And I think, though, I think that the same is true of Scripture at times, that we lose our ability to wonder. We often only read passages like the one that we're going to be in today uh, that consider the birth of Christ maybe once a year around the Christmas holidays. In fact, I know here at First Baptist Olo, this passage is one that you have probably heard every Christmas holiday, and at some point we'll hear it again every Christmas holiday, I guess, moving forward. Because it's certainly fitting that we look at passages like Luke chapter 2 on Christmas when we focus specifically on the incarnation of Christ. But with passages like this, ones that are a little more familiar to us, ones that even though we may visit like only once per year, we face the all too common danger of losing our sense of wonder when we consider the nature of what God has done in sending Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God to take on flesh and to be born of a woman as a helpless babe. And when we begin to think about how the supreme ruler of all, the one through whom all things are created, the Lord above, who is over all of heaven and earth, when we think that He left His glory, He came into time as a helpless infant and subjected Himself to the trials and tribulations of this world before giving up His life on behalf of those who would be redeemed, it should provoke within us a sense of wonder and marvel. How could God have done such a thing as this? Having heard of the good news of the incarnation, the shepherds went to Mary and Joseph, and they told everyone of what they had seen and heard. 
And as they did this, we're told in verse 18 of this passage, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Church, this morning, I want us to wonder at the incarnation. And I want us to reflect and rejoice in what God did through Jesus Christ. This is one of those accounts where, although mind-blowing, we can find ourselves disinterested in what God has done in Christ through our familiarity with it. But I want us to look at this passage this morning with fresh eyes and consider through the lens of Luke's gospel how God did what no one else could have ever done in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem, to give joy, to eliminate fear, and to give peace to His people. And I pray that as we look at this and consider this, that it draws us to our knees in astonishment and wonder and in rejoicing. And so if you are able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as I read Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all who went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Then they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those, a peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Would you pray with me? Father, we are in great need of your help this morning as we stand before and approach your holy word. God, give us insight, give us understanding. God, may Your Spirit work among us and within us to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive the truths of Your Word. God, may what often plagues us 
has familiarity that keeps us from seeing the grandeur and majesty of the truths of your word. May you remove that from us and give us fresh eyes this morning so that we may reflect and rejoice upon the good news of great joy that has come to us through Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So my objective this morning is for us to reflect upon and rejoice in the Incarnation. And we can reflect upon and we can rejoice in the Incarnation with gravitas. We can do it with understanding, with concrete, bedrock, sure hope by seeing this, I think, from this passage in two different ways that then leads to a response. And so we see these two ways in the first seven verses of this passage, the first way, and then the second way in verses 8 through 14 of this passage before being met with a response to Jesus' birth in verses 15 through 21. And so we're going to first begin by considering the facts of Jesus' birth in verses 1 through 7. The facts of Jesus' birth in verses 1 through 7. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the facts of Jesus' birth. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, I preached on verses 1 through 7 as we considered the providence of God in all things uh, leading up to the birth of Christ and in the birth of Christ. Uh, But for the purpose of what I'm attempting to accomplish by drawing us to reflect upon and rejoicing in the incarnation, incarnation, revisiting these facts briefly is necessary. You see, it is important for us to know that Jesus' birth is grounded in history. Jesus' birth is grounded in history. The facts of Jesus' birth are going to lead us, or should lead us, to wonder. His birth was as real as you waking up this morning, and His birth was as real as you sitting in this room right now. And so my task is to help you see these historical facts and so understand that historical facts and faith are not disconnected, but they are connected. The facts surrounding Jesus' birth serve to water the seed of our faith, that it may grow, that it may be nurtured. And as we see and study the plane of history that stretches across time, we may see the birth of the seed of faith that reaches then into the kingdom of God. And so Luke helps us and he wants us to see the historical facts that help the reader to situate and to understand the story of this Jesus who has come. And this is why he gives us the historical context in verses 1 and 2. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago, but he said, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So this is the historical context of what is going on. And so Mary is pregnant with this baby, which is the product, as we know, of God's divine work in creating a child within her, even though she was a virgin. And now, given the context of what's taking place in this time, they must return to Joseph's ancestral home of Bethlehem in order to uh, record accurate records and pay accurate taxes. And so what God uses history to do is to reveal to us, not that history marches to some sort of unexplainable beat of a drum that we can't see or that we can't hear, but rather we see that God is the one who orchestrates these events so that we might see His glory over them. 
And so he providentially governs and he providentially guides history to reveal his glory in the events of history. In fact, it is important for us to know two different ways we can understand the story of Jesus. We can understand the facts of Jesus and we can understand the hand of God in the process. One thing Luke does throughout his gospel is reference historical figures and different historical events, the kind of thing that looks really impressive to the natural eye. But then he will turn the spotlight from what appears to be really important and turns it to something often unnoticed, something seemingly small, something seemingly insignificant. And in doing so, it's as, Luke, it's as if Luke is saying, this is the thing that is actually important. It's not what the world thinks is important. It's not what context thinks is important. This is the thing that is actually important, and this is the thing that is actually significant. You see, we aren't worshiping, we aren't here worshiping Caesar Augustus. We aren't here worshiping Quirinius. We are here worshiping another figure in this story who was seemingly not so great at the time of his birth, or at least by the world's standards. And I want you to see something here. If you trace through Luke 2, 1 through 7, the names of the individuals that are provided for us from Luke, in the eyes of the world, start with great significance, to what, and then, then go down to what appears least significant. We start with Caesar, Caesar Augustus, very significant person, the emperor of Rome. And then under Caesar, we have Quirinius, and then we have Joseph, and then we have Mary, and then we have Jesus. And so you see this progression of important to seemingly unimportant. From the emperor of Rome to a helpless new baby that was born and then laid in a feeding trough, a manger. And so the idea that Luke is showing us here. He's showing us that it is not a matter of worldly importance. It is a matter of significance. And Luke records this so that we might see how God turns this upside down to see the true facts of the birth of the Son of God in order that we might know that His coming was real and that we might understand that His coming demands from us a change in perspective. And so as he walks us through this, he grounds us in understanding the historical facts, the journey, the census, the historical figures in play. And then he drops us in verses 6 and 7. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The census had brought many people back to Bethlehem. The hotels were full. The lodgings and accommodations were exhausted. Mary and Joseph found themselves in some of the worst circumstances, giving birth perceivably in a barn next to a feeding trough. They had nowhere else to go. And we see the birth of Jesus situated in history, the days of Caesar Augustus as a census is being taken. But now Luke says to us, I don't want you to just see 
the historical facts so that you can have them in your head. Do not just see the historical facts, but see how they bleed down and produce wonder in your heart. The reality, the realness, the birth of the Son of God and the circumstances surrounding it are meant to stir our hearts to wonder. Second observation, the wonder of Jesus' birth, verses 8 through 14. So the baby's been born, laid in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger, and in the same region there were shepherds in the field. Now, Luke here, again, in keeping the theme of importance and significance, the angel didn't appear to kings. The angel didn't appear before Congress. The angel didn't appear before religious leaders, but before lowly shepherds. In Luke chapter 1, 46-55, it captures the song of praise lifted up by Mary after visiting her relative Elizabeth to celebrate what God had done in both Mary and Elizabeth. And in Luke 1, 52, Mary declared, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Well, verse 8 tells us in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And in verse 8, the scene changes and the humble of Luke 1.52 are visited. The shepherds. You see, among the occupations, shepherding had a lowly place. Shepherds were outcast. Shepherds were lowly men. They were considered untrustworthy. And their work made them ceremonially unclean. In a sense, they represent the outcasts and the sinners for whom Jesus came. Yet astonishingly, such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news of the gospel. The story isn't leaked to prominent journalists. The story isn't, isn't, isn't uh, uh, shared at a press conference. The story isn't trending on social media. It is communicated to lowly shepherds in a field by night. This is representative of what Luke communicates throughout his gospel, which is good news to the poor. He uses the shepherds to be witnesses to the Good Shepherd. And the message of the good news and of great joy may have gained much more notoriety, may have gained much more prominence had the angel of the Lord gone to Caesar and told Caesar of this good news. But this is not how the Lord worked. He came to the humble. He came to the lowly and to the needy. In a world that wants to see great accomplishments, resumes, and those with great social status. You only encounter God, church, and only find true joy in Him when you are humbled before Him. God is not impressed with what we are naturally impressed with. But He calls us to stop trying to impress and rather to acknowledge the unimpressiveness of that which we bring to the table. Because when we recognize not how great we are and why we should be welcomed into the, <clears throat> excuse me, into the presence of God, but when we see how great our need is, our need for Him, it is then that we do not enter with some sense of entitlement. But it is then that we see and can take awe and wonder before Him. To these shepherds watching their flock by night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And up to this point 
in Luke, we've already seen Gabriel appear to both Zechariah and Mary on two different occasions. However, there's something different about this encounter with the shepherds that we have yet to see. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and Luke tells us the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the first time we've seen glory, the glory of the Lord thus far. This is the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God's presence among people. This glory was the blazing, radiant, blinding glory of God. In Exodus 16, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. In Exodus 24, at Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord appeared like a devouring fire. In Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle. And now, the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, is manifested among His people in the person of Jesus Christ. This is remarkable. Truly remarkable. Here is an angel of who? An angel of the Lord. Here we see the glory of who? The Lord. Who is the Lord? Luke tells us it is Christ, Jesus. And in this moment, what we are being told is that Yahweh has taken on flesh in the Son. The angel is His. The glory is His. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And this, is more, this more than anything should cause us to wonder that the God of all things, the Creator and Sustainer of all, took on flesh. And His glory is manifested among His people. The angel then declares to these lowly shepherds, Fear not. Fear not. These words seem appropriate, do they not? Here's the glory of the Lord. Here's an angel of the Lord. You're watching your, your flock by night. I know many of you live in, in, in secluded places with great land around. Well, as you know, especially living out here, it's dark at nighttime. When you don't have street lights, it's dark. It's scary out there. Let's put it that way. You start hearing all kinds of noises and you don't know what they are and whatever else. So these shepherds are out in the pitch of night, pitch black of night. And an angel appears to them. An angel of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shines around them. It is natural for them to be afraid. And these words of the angel are appropriate. They're gripped with fear as all of us would certainly be gripped with fear. You see, fear is something natural to us. When we see something greater than ourselves, and it intimidates us and even terrifies us, even when it's bringing good news, we can be gripped with fear. Many of you are familiar with the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Anybody? Charlie Brown Christmas special. We watch it every year at my house. I don't know if you do. If you're familiar with Charlie Brown, then you know the character Linus. Yeah? Yes? Good. The boy who's always carrying what? The blanket. <laughs> Linus always carries his blanket. So often others are trying to get him to stop carrying it around, but lo and behold, what does he always have? His blanket. Why does he always have his blanket? It's his security. Because Linus is afraid. You've had kids, you all know, there's those little things they hold on to that are their security blanket. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this from the Charlie Brown Christmas special, but at one point in the Christmas special, Charlie Brown declares, will I ever know the true meaning of Christmas? And Linus simply says, I'll tell you the true meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. 
And then Linus begins this exposition or this recitation of Luke chapter 2. He starts reciting this particular passage. And when he gets to this point, you may remember this, and says, fear not. He sticks his arms out wide, his hands up in the air, and he drops his blanket. I don't know if you've caught that or not in the Christmas special. Why did he drop his blanket? Because in that moment, Linus is declaring in Christ, he no longer has to be afraid. The good news of great joy of knowing Christ means that all fear is gone. And I believe that Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts, was doing this intentionally. The message, the wonder about the baby that was born in the days of Caesar Augustus, the baby that was born during the days of Quirinius, the governor of Syria, is that he came, this message is that he came in order that we need not fear. That then naturally raises a question. Fear not. What should we not be afraid of? Afraid of what? Well, the angel helps us to see this. Verse 11, Unto you is born this day a Savior, Christ the Lord. Now let's pause here. A Savior, Christ the Lord. Those are three titles. Savior, Christ, Lord. By calling Him Savior, the angel is saying, this is the one you need. Jesus is the one you need. This Savior is the one who would atone for the sins of His people. He has come. In Christ, you need not fear punishment for sin. He has come to save you from that. We do not need a Savior from the things outside of us that we think may harm us externally. We need a Savior from the things internal to us. Namely, a rebellious heart against God. We are talking about a profoundly amazing thing that happens here in the birth of the Son of God. That we've been given given a Savior by God to reconcile us with God so that we can know God. And yet, here's the thing, church. I I want us all to ask ourselves with complete honesty this morning, how often do we hear this story and we're bored by it? How often are we disinterested in it and think that we have little use for it? Far too often, I know this is the case with my own heart, as my familiarity with the birth of Christ causes me at times to lose my sense of wonder. We need a Savior to lift the scales off of the eyes of our hearts so that we may see into the mirror of our sin and see the Lord. And we also need a Savior that we may have the eyes of our hearts open so that we may trust Him. The One who redeems us from our sins. Maybe the thing you need to see today in the Lord Jesus is your need for Him as Savior who atones for your sins. As one pastor said, God did not send us an economist because our greatest problem is not the economy. He didn't send a philosopher because our greatest problem is not incoherence. He didn't send an entertainer because our greatest problem is not boredom. He didn't send an administrator because our greatest problem is not disorganization. He sent a Savior because our greatest problem is sin. Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves, and our greatest problem has been solved in Jesus. It's true. Jesus is Savior. By calling this child Christ, the angel also is saying that He is the promised one, the Messiah that you've been waiting upon. 
Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one sent, who has been sent by God to rescue and redeem His people. The one that's been promised all the way as early as Genesis chapter 3. He is the Lord because He is the one who reigns over all. Jesus, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. This is no small saying. This is not a minute thing that's happening here in Luke chapter 2. Fear not, the Lord has come. He says to you, born today in the city of David as a Savior. Then the only thing that can follow such a great announcement is a heavenly host, a multitude of angels praising God. Look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. I don't even know how to start or where to begin in explaining what is happening here. Here is a multitude of angels declaring the first Christmas carol, singing praises unto God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Words cannot even begin to capture the majesty of what is happening. An angelic declaration taking place in the field as glory is ascribed to Yahweh and peace among those with whom He is pleased. And it's meant to draw us to wonder. Do you know how to have wonder? Do you know how you have wonder? When you consider the things, when you consider the fears, when you consider the worries, the anxieties of your own sin that cripple your heart, in fear. And when you consider those things and then recognize that although you feel overwhelmed by these things, there is someone who has come who is able to take them onto Himself. There is someone who is greater than these fears that you carry and you can know Him because He has come to you. He is Christ the Lord. And the danger we face is that we will find Him out of touch with our day, insignificant in the eyes of all that we carry. Church, the danger for us is that we all know how busy we are. We are all trying to navigate the trials and tribulations we all face. The danger for us is hearing about Jesus' coming and mistakenly assuming that it's not for us or that it doesn't apply to all of the various things we encounter or carry in our day-to-day lives. But when we realize the glory and the magnitude of the reality that God took on flesh in Christ, that He came to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption, which includes us, when we realize that Christ came to be involved in every aspect of our lives and to carry our burdens for us, then we will join the angelic chorus because it's good news. Jesus offers you something today, church, and it is Himself. What Luke shows us is that God is in the business of revealing and showing His glory through His Son to the most unsuspecting people, even you and even me. He comes to eliminate fear and He comes to give peace to those with whom He is pleased. He offers us peace with Himself He offers us peace with ourselves, and He offers us peace with others. Receive His peace this morning as you wonder at what He has done for us. Now we reach the point where we have the facts of Jesus' birth, 
the wonder of Jesus' birth. And now we have to ask ourselves, what will I make of Jesus' birth? Third observation, there's two responses we see. We see reflection and we see rejoicing. Luke gives us two responses to the good news of great joy announced by the angel. One by Mary and one by the shepherds. Both are fitting and both are right. Mary ponders the faithfulness and goodness of God in sending a Savior who is Christ the Lord in the role she has had in His coming. We see this in verse 19. It says, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We then see the response of the shepherds. The shepherds, perhaps a rowdy bunch, a little more rambunctious potentially, they didn't just give birth like Mary. Let's, let's be clear about that. So they might, might be a little more energetic in their response. But the shepherds return praising God and glorifying Him for all they have heard and seen. Look at verse 20. The shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So Luke shows us, and Luke asks us how we will respond to the birth of Christ. Will we look at the facts and respond in wonder? Or will we look at the facts and respond in disinterest? I want you to think about when you were first born again. I'm sure you remember this time in your life. For many, when you were first born again, your response to the gospel, your response to this new salvation was very similar to the shepherd's. You were so floored by the good news of great joy that you had just received, and you were very much like the shepherds, praising and glorifying God for what you have heard and seen. I think about when I was first born again, even the things I said and believed, I think back now, you know, a lot of it's funny. You know, you think about it and laugh at it. But there was a zeal, there was a fervor when you're, when we, when you're first born again that for some reason over time, has the tendency to fade. That fervor, that zeal, that wonder can fade away. Maybe it was the trials of this life, the day-to-day busyness, the struggles. Maybe your growing family, your failures, your battle with sin, or your familiarity with the things of God that all might have caused your wonder to be stifled. And I wonder this morning, just asking the question, do you want that sense of wonder to return? Do you want to marvel and wonder once more at what God has done for you in Christ? This morning, I would just instruct you to ask the Spirit of God to rekindle the good news of great joy within you. Ask the Spirit of God to renew your sense of wonder and refresh your spiritual eyes to gaze upon Christ and glorify and praise God for all that you've heard and seen. This is the response of the shepherds. But there's also Mary's response, reflection. Mary treasured up all she had heard and pondered these things in her heart. I wonder if you carve out time in your daily life to reflect upon the things of God. Do you hide the Scriptures in your heart? Do you treasure them? Do you ponder the good news of great joy? You see, I'm afraid that in our modern times that we're so captivated by doing this or looking at screens or filling our minds with various things lest we be left out, busying our minds with meaningless things, 
I'm afraid that we don't take the time anymore to just sit and reflect and to ponder things. You know, there was a, there was a generation or a culture, and, and it's very much alive still, that spent a lot of time on the porch. People would sit on the porch, right, in rocking chairs and just think and ponder the events of the day. I feel like we've lost some of that. How often do you sit and meditate on the things of God? Think about the things of God or ponder what God has done or has revealed in the Scriptures. Pausing and practicing these things can be of tremendous benefit from you. And we can learn a lot from Mary here. As God's people, we must treasure and ponder the things of God. Now church, we don't want to waste, we don't want to ignore, and we don't want to shrug off the birth of Christ. We want to be aware of our need for it. Let us reflect on the coming of Christ, God's divine orchestrating of the world events, and let us take wonder at the work of Christ as the explanation for why He has come, that He may take away our fears, that He might show us in the midst of our fears that He is with us, and that we may look back at His coming and trust He is coming again, and that we may know that God is with us. We need to know that God is with us. Hear the promise from the angel, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let us reflect. And as we reflect, He will take our hearts and lead us to rejoice. Overall, in the grand scheme of God's ultimate plan of redemption,